So this is, a, this is family night tonight, which is why you're hearing some of our kiddos do the readings and that kind of thing. So kids are staying in the room with us. If you've got a little and they absolutely need to get out of the room, there'll be some child care out there. You're uh, welcome to walk them out there if they need it. But otherwise, uh, welcome kids to the uh, sermon, and I'm sorry. Uh, but it's good, it's good practice. It's good practice. So um, we, are, uh, we are in the Gospel of John, verses 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And uh, let me go ahead and read that for us, and then we will talk about uh, this passage that has um, a lot of a lot of different metaphors and stuff happening all in one place. Uh, it says this, John 10, verses 1 through 10. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out, uh, when he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So, Je- so again, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. All right, so there are some things that are so important or deep or whatever you want to say that we have a hard time talking about them directly, right? You have no choice but to use analogy or simile or metaphor to try and convey a truth. Um, Obviously, that's a big part of my job is trying to come up with these kinds of figures of speech to try and communicate something on a week-to-week basis. Um, But I can't claim that even as much as I have to employ this, that I'm always successful at it. Um, As I was uh, thinking about this, I remember our first year, actually I think our first few weeks meeting as a church, um, when I was doing a sermon and I was trying to explain what I felt like the nature of church was, how it was structured and not structured, what we should be shooting for and not shooting for, and I said, uh, quote, that the kingdom of God is like Al-Qaeda, not Iraq. My point was that Iraq was kind of built like any normal kingdom of the world, kind of a pyramid structure. There's someone in charge, they have the people beneath them, there's an army, and it kind of works its way down. It's built on uh, the poorest people and those who end up you know, bearing the brunt of everything. And we were in two two wars at the time. And at the time, we had no problem taking out Iraq. In fact, it only took us a few days to take out the entire huge structure that was so impressive. Uh, We took took out a few leaders, and the whole thing fell apart. But I said then, and this ended up being somewhat true, I don't think it was a real mystery, though, that we were probably going to be fighting something like Al-Qaeda forever in one form or another because it's more of an uh, ideology than a structure, right? If you squash it here, it pops up here. It's more of a way of thinking or looking at the world. Uh, it, it's, a, it's organic, it's viral, it's hard to get rid of because it's not that kind of big structural entity that you can just topple over. And I believe that about church, right? I think that image actually holds up. But shockingly, I had some members of the church come up to me afterwards and tell me maybe phrases like, Jesus' kingdom is like Al-Qaeda, 
was not good for us to put out there in the public and use in sermons. Agree to disagree. Um, earlier this week, we were having a meeting in which we were at the foundation. We were talking about how uh, it can be difficult when you're working with a bunch of people, but you end up being the one that catches everything that falls through all the different cracks in different places. And uh, the image I came up with off the top of my head, as I said, I feel like sometimes we are the drip pan and we catches, catch everything that no one else wants. And when I said that, um, Caroline had a physical reaction at the table. She jolted back like someone had punched her in the face, and she had a look of absolute disgust on her face because she hated that image so much. Um, so as a good friend and Christian pastor, I only used it 20 or 30 more times that day to annoy her. My point being that all my figures of speech work in conveying the truth I'm trying to get them to convey all the time. But in this way, and arguably only in this way, I am quite Christ-like. We are told in today's scripture that while Jesus was attempting to illustrate a deep truth with various images and figures of speech, no one had a clue what he was saying. And it honestly shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Shouldn't be a surprise that people were confused by Jesus because in this short little section of, of scripture right here, Jesus jumps all over the place. In this one little section, Jesus is utilizing illustrations where he talks about sheep and shepherds and thieves and bandits and gates and gatekeepers. There's a lot of mixing of metaphors here. In fact, at one point, he essentially says, if you kind of did the Mike Dixon revised version, he essentially says what is, boils down to the phrase, I am a gate, not a thief. And that is a categorically bizarre thing to say. It sounds like something my son Chapman tells me when I'm trying to get him to go to bed at night and he's just spouting things off. Today, I tasted purple. What does that mean? How do you taste a color, right? It's just didn't, the, the categories are mixed up. If the scene was some kind of scandal, we would dub, we would dub it Shepherd Gate because Jesus is confusing everyone. It's a crime against language what happens here. I understand why everyone was confused, because I've spent this entire week confused about this passage. I started and scrapped three other sermons this week because it felt very questionable as to whether or not what I was writing actually had anything to do with, Jesus, with what Jesus was trying to say here. And arguably by the end of tonight, I won't have been successful on try number four. So I didn't know what to do. I did what we should all do in situations like this, particularly in Scripture, I looked backwards. I read backwards and tried to find the context for this entire saying. Why did Jesus launch into this in the first place? And as it turns out, this teaching of Jesus comes after a long, heated disagreement with the religious leaders of the time. The entire conflict is based in that story that we covered a few weeks ago with the healing of the blind man. And if you'll remember, the story essentially goes like this. Jesus uh, spits in the dirt, rubs it on someone's eyes, and gives a blind man sight. A man who is blind from birth can finally see. He does this in response to the, uh, his disciples asking about this man. And what they ask is, is this man blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And Jesus uh, dissuades them of this whole way of looking at the world. So he helps this man move uh, from being uh, considered cursed man considered to be a sinner even though he didn't do anything and he healed him physically and he healed him physically on the sabbath which was a big deal to the religious powers that be 
But more importantly than even giving this man sight, I would argue he healed the man communally, right? Jesus returns this man to the larger community where he has been an outsider. He was a beggar asking all those who crossed by to help him out. He was assumed to be a sinner, cursed by those who did or did not share with him. And now he is included. He's accepted back into the community. Jesus becomes the door by which this man enters into more abundant life, to use the imagery that Jesus will employ in today's story. Unfortunately, that is not the end of the story in John 9. After the religious authorities hear about this man who can now see, they go through multiple rounds of interrogation for this now healed man and even bring in his family, who he seems to be uh, not in touch with anymore. And the religious leaders in their profound wisdom determine that Jesus is a sinner for having healed on the Sabbath. In their profound wisdom, they decide that this formerly blind man was a sinner from birth and cannot be trusted in his testimony. They end up casting him out for having the nerve to receive a miracle and then tell the truth about it. When Jesus finds out they have cast him out, he goes and finds the man, the man who only knew Jesus by his voice, and brings him back into the community once again. And this comes in the middle of Jesus having disagreements with the religious leaders. It continues those disagreements. Jesus has been discussing, uh, Jesus uh, and the religious leaders have been verbally sparring for a while. In fact, it's been contentious enough that Jesus calls them sons of the devil, which is one of those things you want to keep off your list of things that Jesus calls you. He calls them sons of the devil. They try to stone him. They hate him. They are angry with him. And then he heals this blind man, and the religious leaders cast the blind man out. They try to get him to turn on Jesus, and he won't. And that's how we get where we are into this paragraph of a million metaphors. So ultimately what Jesus has, is discussing here is the nature of this disagreement with the religious leaders, the two kind of ways of going and being that are before everyone. He's trying to explain the difference between the Son of God and these sons of the devil. And while he may be using confusing imagery, he is condemning their behavior and explaining his own. He's illustrating to everyone the difference between what he has come to do and the harm that destructive religion can bring to his people. And I think this is important for us to remember. Because these verses taken out of context can actually be used to condemn people as outsiders. I know when I grew up and we talked about Jesus as the gate, when we read these verses, somehow Jesus as quote-unquote gate turned into bad news for the sheep out there we disliked. It was the means by which we kept people out. Although it's supposed to be good news. We use these verses to exclude people, which is largely what Jesus is actually arguing against in these verses. Jesus is giving a defense for his inclusion of the man everyone assumed to be unworthy and, and sinful. And I think we've missed the point here if we fail to see this teaching as a tool for us, the sheep, to know the difference between competing voices in this world. So how do we know the difference between the shepherd, the gate, and the thief and the bandit? How do we know the difference between those voices? I think we can start at the end of the story, reverse engineer it from within the text. Right? We know that scripture tells us that you know a tree by its fruit. 
You know a tree by its fruit, and so it is with these competing voices. Christ tells us that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. The thief does not care for the sheep. The sheep are just a means to an end. They're just a way to further ensure the thief's own security, the thief's own power, the thief's own money, fill in the blank. The sheep are easily discarded once they have received what they wanted from them. The thief takes the sheep away from the herd and leaves the sheep vulnerable in ways that never otherwise would have been vulnerable. These are the fruits of the thief. No matter how loudly they may claim God, no matter how religious they may claim to be, if you see these things, you're dealing with a bandit. Because the shepherd, the shepherd comes that the sheep might have life abundantly. The shepherd exists to benefit the sheep, not himself. The shepherd is the reason the sheep have each other in the first place. The shepherd's words are what orient and gather the sheep in community together. The shepherd gathers the sheep by facing the danger with them, by walking before them, by stepping out and laying himself down before them for their benefit. And in this way, that shepherd, to mix metaphors, is also the gate. The gate is the way into this abundant community. There are not many different paths from isolation and danger into safety and community. To call himself the gate, Jesus is claiming to be the means and the ends. You cannot gather sheep for abundance in any other way than this gate, which is to say the way of grace, the way of unconditional love, the way of forgiveness and mercy, the way of uh, service and sacrifice and unconditional love. This is the only gate you can walk through to get to this abundance. You cannot build the shepherd's pen with the thieves' tools. There is only one gate. Yet how often have we as religious people tried to find another easier way into building this community, to gathering sheep for ourselves? How often have we used guilt and shame and judgment and fear to try and gather the herd? How many times in the name of Christian community have we destroyed the sheep? How many times have we tried to protect the thieves dressed in shepherd's clothing at the expense of those they're called to protect? In the name of building the most impressive sheepfold, we have run over the livestock who are supposed to be the reason we're here time and time again. We're known for it very often. So I don't know that there's more, a more important thing for us to remember as we gather in this place each week. Like our shepherd, we are here for the sheep, for each other. This is why we do this. There's no other good reason. One of the unique things about being a minister, being the pastor, but really anyone in a ministry position is something that I wish I could take out and just plug into everyone that sits in the pews each week, not just here, but in every church. It's the kind of thing I hear other pastors talk about on a week-to-week basis when we sit down and share what's going on in our lives. I wish I could take it and plug it in to everyone. Because we spend so much time getting caught up in things at church that don't really matter. 
One of the benefits of being pastor is that I'm often privy to things that you may not be. So when I stand up here each week and I look out at you guys, I'm not up here to perform my role, to put on a good service that you guys will like and that will come across well online that people may think is cool for their consumption. Because when I look around the room, I know things that some of you may not. I don't know it all, but I know about that diagnosis. I know about that person's marital struggles, about the debts that person is struggling underneath, the loneliness that person is experiencing that they've talked to me about, the divorce that is gutting that person that they may not have told anyone else about. When I stand up here, I know those things. I know how much some of you need this respite and rest. I know that this community means far more to you than any performance we can put on. I don't have the luxury, and I'm thankful for this, of being too distracted when the wrong words pop up on the screen. Of being too distracted when the sermon is not really a home run like I wished it would be. When the kid makes too much noise in the room or whatever thing that we have in the churches and we feel are important when really they're just not. It's not what matters most in here. We are here to try and help provide a little life and abundance for the sheep we gather with, for those who need it most. We are here to remember who the shepherd is and how the shepherd is, to remind ourselves of the means and the ends of Christ. It's our job to become so familiar with the shepherd's voice, his words, his love, his way, that we can't mistake it for anything else. We know the real thing. We know what matters. So that when we find ourselves running away from what matters, when we find ourselves running towards all that destroys and brings death, sometimes even in his name, we might recognize it for what it is. We gather so that there is only one voice that we are following. And this is not easy. This is not easy because there are a lot of things claiming to speak for the shepherd. But very often what we know is that they're leaving a trail of trampled sheep in their wake. Which means they are stealing what is not theirs to take. But as we heard in the psalm today, for us, for those following the good shepherd... Only goodness and mercy should follow us all the days of our lives. For we follow a good shepherd, a shepherd who lives and dies for the benefit of the sheep that others so easily dismiss. A good shepherd who works to keep them from isolation and loneliness, the isolation that leaves them the most vulnerable in this dangerous world. The good shepherd works for our abundance. The shepherd is there for the sheep that he so deeply cares for. And we should always be gathering for the same reason. If we don't gather for the sheep, then we've walked through the wrong door and we've listened to the wrong voice. We are thieving, not shepherding. And that's a bigger tragedy than any convoluted metaphors I can come up with right now could possibly explain. I'm thankful that tonight we also had a reading, read beautifully by the way, 
uh, from Acts 2 because I think it's a great little image that I want to close with. I think it's a great image of what it looks like when the sheep are following the good shepherd. Allow me to read this and we'll close. When it talks of those gathering in Christ's name, it says this, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon everyone because of many wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God for having the goodwill, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. May we be those kinds of sheep following that kind of shepherd. Let's pray. God, we confess that um, we forget. We forget so easily what is most important. We forget that each one of us is a sheep who would not do well on their own. Each one of us is that sheep who has wandered off and been gathered up by the Good Shepherd the one who lays his own life down for us, the one who brings us back to the fold, the one who gives us uh, love and grace and community. God, may we listen to that voice. May we remember what is most important when we gather in this place. And may we, as followers of the Good Shepherd, have only goodness and mercy left behind when we leave. God, we do love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.